Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by... Nancy Prayer Johnson, Associate Editorial Board Editor. And Carrie Clack, Columnist Editorial Board. This is uh, our last podcast episode of 2022. Uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, the Texas legislative session is about to start, and our guest today is going to uh, help talk us through it. Um, Senator Jose Menendez has... Um, Served in the legislature for, uh, I guess, about 22 years, nearly eight of them now uh, representing um, San Antonio in Senate District 26. And uh, Senator Menendez, we're really glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate the invitation. It's always good to be with people who help inform our community what's what's really going on. Um, I wanted to start off by by talking about a, a situation that's that's uh, unusual for Texas. I'm sure it's uh, this is not... Uh, what you've been used to dealing with in your time in the legislature. Uh, about five months ago, we heard from the state comptroller that we had, uh, that he projected that we'd have a $27 billion uh, surplus. Um, and uh, I think more recently, he has kind of hinted that it could be larger than that. Correct. When you're looking uh, at the, your priorities and this, the legislature has the, the and we now have the luxury of having a little, a little more money than we that we normally have. Um, what are what, what are your goals? What would you like to see considered for the use of that surplus money? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, the legislature. I've I've been in. I, I didn't realize it didn't. It doesn't feel like it's been quite that long. My, but two thousand one was my first session. Um, so I've been there when when we've had money, when we've been broke, and and, and in between, and. The reality is that obviously this money is not our money. It's not the state's money. Mm-hmm. It's 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 the citizens. And ever since I served on city council, I've always felt that my my number one most important priority as an elected official is to be a good steward of the taxpayer money. And what does that mean? It, it, it doesn't mean always making just the easy knee-jerk reactions. Like some politicians will say, um, you know, just give it all back. You know, and we've heard some people say, give at least half of it back. Um, Then others will say, no, no, we need to invest it or spend it, however, whichever word you want to choose on these priorities. At the end of the day, I think we need to think about it as we would do our own family budget. And in our own family budget, we would uh, place a value proposition on, on if you got a, a bonus at work or something on what you would, what are the needs you've put off? that you can finally take care of. And, um, and, and I think that uh, the state of Texas has got a lot of those. And we, you know, we need to look at the realities that are facing us, and we need to look at where can we invest money that will, that will di- reap dividends in the future long term. And I'm mm-hmm. not talking about financial dividends. I mean, 
the, the, the most important things for our state are that we are a healthy state that's educated. If we're healthy, if our population is healthy and has food security and understands that Maslow's needs, their hierarchy needs, are, the, their basic needs are met, then those kids can learn. Then those kids can worry about getting an education when they know that they're going to have a meal. And once we can have kids reading on grade level, we're not going to have to worry about them dropping out in high school. And so then we're not going to have to worry about building more prisons. So, so if we take care of the basic issues here, and so how do you do that? You need to have people who are called to teach, but that are also professionals, that, that, are, that we treat them like the professionals that they are, that we provide them a, a – they have to understand that even if they're not going to get Social Security, like most teachers in Texas get no, don't get Social Security, they're on the teacher retirement system – that in the state of Texas has treated them like third-class citizens. They have not had a cost-of-living adjustment in 18 years. I get emails from retirees that talk about having to make decisions between treating their kid, their grandchildren to, a, to an ice cream or, or paying for food. Do you think this is the, the, uh, the main cause of the teacher shortage that we're hearing about? In this it state? is definitely one of them. So, yeah, I mean, why? So if you're a retiree and you're, you can't live, would you encourage anyone that you know to go into the teaching profession? Of course not. You're not treated. And then if, if they're, they're flooding you and they won't give you a reasonable class size, but they give you all these other things to do on top of that. So now you got all this paperwork. You can never prepare for class. You're not respected. You have no time for lunch. You have no time to prepare. So we have got to do a better job of treating teachers as professionals, the professionals we want to have. At the end of the day, sometimes it feels almost as if people want it to set it up to fail. Because if you set up the public school system that we currently have, then maybe, just maybe, then you get what you've always wanted, which is to set up a private pay system with taxpayer dollars which is what they're still trying to do with vouchers, which the reality that's so sad is the voucher, any voucher the state of Texas would provide to anybody would never pay for the entirety of that private education. It wouldn't pay for the books, wouldn't pay for the uniforms, wouldn't pay for transportation, wouldn't pay for the food. And so all you're doing is discounting, providing a discount, subsidizing people who are already in the private education system. We have got to take a breath. We've got to step back. We have to do an analysis and say, this is not our money. It's the people's money. And how do we use this to invest in a better Texas for everyone? I'm tired of the fact that we lead a number of imprisoned, that we lead in the number of uninsured, that we lead in all these horrible statistics, and that we're to dead last in, in investment and per capita in our citizens, that we're dead last in, in, in educational attainment. There's no, it's not a mistake. It's, it's, if you don't invest in these things, it's by design. And so we have a lot of needs. I, I hope that we can take a very uh, measured and mature approach. And I hope that there'll be a conversation where everyone's voice is respected. I, I, I can't tell you, I'm not going to come into this with a negative. I'm not going to say that uh, past is prologue. I'm, I am going to obviously... I'm not going to be Pollyannish, but I am going to come in and say, look, here are the needs that we've, if we'd only done this in the past, maybe we could do this moving forward. And we know that certain farmers will say, if you just pay us for the cost of taking the, the, the vegetables out of the field and transport them, we'll give them to you. We, food banks across the state have got programs like that where the state can fund 
just the cost where there's surplus because if not, there's no way the farmer is going to pay for the fuel cost to transport this to give it away. We as a state need to make investments. So there's so many places that the last 21 years of experience of my being in the legislature, three of those being on the Appropriations Committee, have given me an insight to where we can make investments. And we can make investments looking forward. We can say at a medical school that's trying to cure Alzheimer's and, and trying to find cures for dementia and cancer and all these things. We can look at what could we do for them in terms of hiring researchers and what do they need. Um, you know, so there, there's a myriad of, of things that we can invest in. And I just hope that uh, it is, it is uh, done in a way that we can all look back and be proud. Now, that does not mean that, that we have not, we've got to not stop and look at the people who are being taxed out of their neighborhoods through no fault of their own. All the people who live around the Pearl uh, who are gentrified because their values are going through the roof, but they've lived in the same house that's been passed down for six generations doing nothing to the house. But now the house is worth so much that they can't afford the taxes. Well, when people talk about uh, property tax uh, appraisal reform, I mean, what what uh, uh, what form it would would that take as, as far as your your sense of uh, how how, would, how that would work? Because obviously that's this is statewide problem. My my first. My first inclination, because it's such a complex issue, I've seen so many times us try to go at it, is to raise homestead exemptions. And I think the reason I say that is because it is the folks at the lowest end of the financial stream that that can afford the property taxes. I'd love to see, and and if you raise uh, the homestead exemption, it actually helps everyone who has a home, but that impact on the lower end of the spectrum, if your home's worth $200,000 or $100,000, is that in impact is so much more significant than the person lives in the million-dollar home. And the person living in the million-dollar home probably has a 401k, probably has a, uh, a stocks and bond portfolio, probably has the ability to, to figure out options. Certain folks don't have options. And so my concern is to make sure that we address those uh, folks who have no options. Um, I, I think it just, for too long, Texas is, um, it feels as if we've left out people who don't have access to lobbyists, people who don't have access to the powerful, the rich, the connected, the, the people who don't have the high powered lawyers that can come and make the case for them. And so I think that as a legislator who is elected in a district that has a, a, a high level of poverty, that I it is my responsibility to be their voice, and and it doesn't mean that I'm going to ignore the people who've done well for themselves. It just means that I have a I have to have a focus, so that I can try to bring some equity to the whole conversation, uh, and and so I'm not leaving everyone else out. But I do know that my employers also have asked for educated workforce. And so, so I, I, I know that I think where I can do the best is where employers are telling me I can't hire people. I don't have people to hire. And as a state, why are we doing more to work with the feds on a, you know, a bracero type program where we can have a, 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 a legal regulated workforce of immigrants uh, that are already coming, but we could have them paying into the system, paying taxes, uh, maybe being able to buy uh auto insurance, because if they're driving anyway, why are the rest of us subsidizing uninsured drivers? So there's a part of me that says we should be doing in our registration a small amount that says a, a set aside for all uninsured drivers so that everybody that registers a vehicle 
pool, pays into the pool because every one of us around this table and everyone that ha- that does pay for auto insurance, there's a part of our premiums that go to pay for uh, uninsured drivers. There's plenty to work on. Mm-hmm. My my mind goes when you're talking about people without a voice to the new maternal um, health report mm-hmm. that was um, it was finally published on Thursday. Mm-hmm. It was delayed by three months. Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> and I know I know we've written about it, and you know it's been, it's been in just about every Texas publication. But just saying, okay, it's going to be delayed. Um, and so finally, it's been published, and it's you know ninety percent of deaths could have been prevented. Um, it's 12% pregnancy-related deaths in 2019 were were based on discrimination, and um, you know, and, and it's black women um, mm-hmm. who are dying yeah. as they're trying to give childbirth. I know that the legislature, you know, the Senate passed the um, the Senate passed the you know trying to extend the health care for for women after they give childbirth right. to one year. Right. But now, but then it was kicked down to six months yeah. in the Senate. So, can you talk about that and what your plans are? Yeah, absolutely. Look, first and foremost, it's so depressing to see how much um, we have manipulated um, reports, timing, things, different things, just to affect uh, how people vote, just to affect elections. It's so depressing to retain control. I don't understand how you can be someone who, if you want to say, and there's many of my colleagues who who proudly say, I'm a pro-life, whatever they want to finish that sentence with, but it's always pro-life. Well, if you're very much pro-life, doesn't that mean it's just, it's it's also after that baby's born, you would want to protect the life of the baby and the mother? Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you're pro-life, aren't you pro-life for the entire life of this child that you've asked to bring to, into this world? Yeah. And, and we already know that the studies show that the children do best when they're with their family. So if we know that part of the reason that even if they survive um, giving birth, then there's, there's the depression that comes to some mm-hmm. and then they run out of health care. And then they run out of a medical home because they don't have coverage. And so we get back to where we started about being leading the nation and uninsured. Mm-hmm. And so, no, I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm all for expanding Medicaid to cover everybody. I think everyone needs to have a medical home mm-hmm. so that once again, the thing that gets to me is I don't understand how if you know that the most effective way, financially effective, if, you're, if your heart doesn't drive you to do the compassionate thing, then if let's look at the numbers. And if... Financially, you understand that the most effective thing is for people to have a, a medical home so they have a primary care physician so that they don't have to go to the emergency room for, for their medical care. Why wouldn't you go ahead and say, let's draw down our tax dollars and use that? Because those are our Texas tax dollars that the federal government is dispersing around the nation. Mm-hmm. When we had this problem, because Texas has always been a donation donating state on roads, on highways, they got Kay Bailey Hutchinson to pass a law that Texas was guaranteed a minimum of, I think, 91 cents on the dollar for every dollar we sent to D.C. Because we were only getting about 70, 71 back from the feds. Why don't we do the same for health care? Yeah. Why don't we? 
Because it's become political. Mm -hmm. Because people, because it was President Obama that came up with mm -hmm. the national health care program. Mm -hmm. Because it was called Obamacare. Because, because Texas has decided that politically it's better not to have anything that associates you or f with the federal government. Because we could solve our grid problem if we tied into the national grids, the western and the eastern grid. We could strengthen our electrical grid. We can do so many things if we stop acting like we're an independent country. Mm -hmm. um, you were talking about uh, people uh, in, in the state who define themselves as pro-life. And of course, um, we have a very uh, strict um, abortion law in the state, yeah. which provides no exceptions except to, pr to protect the life of the mother. Um, it, it feels like even within this state, there has been a political backlash against um, the, the, the new um, situation with abortion. And I, I just wonder if there, if you think there's any willingness on the part of your Republican colleagues to uh, put in exceptions for rape and incest or, or to do anything else to modify the state law. I've heard from a few of them that they feel that rape and incest, it appears that they've put out some sort of, whisper campaign that they want to do um, exceptions for rape and incest. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not a part of their meetings or anything, so I'm not sure uh, if that will come to fruition. I, I would hope so. I think, I think politically it's, it's a problem for them. It hurts them where they're already hurt, being hurt the most where suburban, you know, suburban women, um, it hurts them there. And I mean, if it weren't for rural Texas, I mean, we would actually win some statewide campaigns and stuff. And so, you know, as Democrats, um, you know, we've not done a good enough job of, of uh, messaging to all of Texas. We've depended too long for too hard on, on urban voters. Um, and this is an issue that shouldn't be partisan, like a lot of these issues shouldn't be partisan, uh, but it's become partisan. And um, I don't understand. It's, I, I see this as a health care issue. I see this as a human rights issue. I, I see this as a respect for women to treat them as equals. Uh, I don't understand why a bunch of uh, majority men get to decide politically what's uh, in women's best interest, what, why we should be involved in a decision of when and if women have choose to have a child or not. I mean, it's a culture war, right? And they it is. throw religion in there. And I mean, I, I my column for Sunday's paper is about the drag show here and all the protests that happen. Yeah. And it's all tied together. I mean, they use religion. To further their own agendas, it is. But sometimes that those religious views seem to be only when convenient. Because if your religious views really, if you once again you want to go to back and say you you believe in life, then it be, why isn't it all lives? Why is it okay for immigrant fifty two immigrants to die in the back of a trailer and, and 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 you can turn a blind eye? Why can't you say why don't we do more as a country, as a state, rather than spend billions of dollars building an, an antiquated wall? Why don't we go find out what the what the true reasons people would risk their lives to cross deserts and to cross jungles and to cross rivers and put their lives in danger? Why can't we go find out how do we help these neighbors? How do we help stabilize their countries? And therefore, we could stem the flow of immigrants because if that's what freaks you out, then – and I agree, we need to have – that's the other thing we're – Democrats, we're, we're scared of talking about the border. Yes, all countries need to have a safe and secure border, a real border, and have orderly immigration policies. 
not these they they've taken the other side's taken and defined us as open borders, take away guns, kill babies, and we've let them define us. And that's part of why we don't win races statewide, because we've allowed them to define us. And so it's it's it is our fault. Why is the messaging so bad along with those issues? Because you you you're afraid to say these things in the primary because you're gonna lose in the primary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they're and therefore you're afraid to be honest and upfront. Um, and you know who knows? You know maybe if my first race for the Senate eight years ago had been a primary race, maybe I wouldn't be here. Mm. But you got to remember, mine was a special election, right. mm-hmm. and so I, I I just spoke my truth, and 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 said what I said, and 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 put my record forward. And and I think I'm only going to stay in politics if I get to be who I am. I, I if I have to change how I represent the community, then I don't want to be a part of it, you know, and I, I don't want to be a part of something that's just for show. I don't want to be just for press conferences. I, that's the, that's the part that gets really tiresome of being in, in Texas as, as a party in the minority is that sometimes it feels like it's, you know, um, it, it is perfunctory. It is, uh, it, it's, it's, it can be at times futile. And it, and if it ever gets to the point where they marginalize people like, and because you're in the minority, then, then I'm done. I, my my family sacrificed way too much mm. uh, for me to just be uh, doing this for show. Just a quick question about back to Medicaid expansion. In your years in the Senate, have you seen any signs of, of Republicans uh, becoming more receptive to Medicaid expansion? Is there is there a path to actually getting there? There's a few at times that have talked about it. Um, I think their fear is their primary voter. I think their um, their fear is that. I think too that too many times some of them have you know statewide aspirations. You know, in the Senate, it seems like everyone in the House, everyone seemed like they were either uh, looking having Senate aspirations or something, and in the Senate they start having these statewide aspirations and they start thinking of, or congressional and they start looking at their records and you see them making votes just based on how it'll impact the, the next primary. The worst thing we have is these gerrymandered mm-hmm. districts that have, they're so gerrymandered that mm-hmm. the primary is really the de facto election. Yeah. And that's the worst thing we have. That, that, that really has hurt us the most. I, I really, that's why I keep following the bill for an independent redistricting commission. Um, I, I think the day that we take the drawing of the lines out of the hands of politicians and we'll, you know, I mean, I put forward an amendment that would have given us two new Hispanic Senate seats. We haven't had one in 30 mm-hmm. years, a new Senate Hispanic seat. It dropped my Democratic performance index from the current 60 something percent mm-hmm. to 52, 53. My staff's hair was on fire and they're like, are you sure? What if they take it? And oh, you got to lead by example. You got to be willing to say, if I want more people in a balanced, it would have been a 1615 Republican Democratic Senate at the, if the map had been adopted. Mm-hmm. I would rather work in a place where we can get things done yeah. than, than, than be like so happy that I'm going to get reelected every time all I have to do is win the primary. Mm. I said, that's the problem. Yeah. And, and, and you got to be able to not, you know, not be afraid of the voters. You talked a little bit about uh, the grid and, and, and as an example of how Texas kind of acts like it's a, it's a country unto itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we had the 2021 uh, freeze, which was devastating. We saw the grid collapse. Uh, Republicans came out of the 2021 session saying, OK, we have to have taken care of everything's good. Uh, I know that that's not a view that you share. What what and you talk about connecting to other to other states or connecting to the national grid. What other things are you would you like to see uh, considered? Look. The irony of it is, yes, during the uh, election, 
one side was saying, grid has been resolved. Everything's safe and sound and don't worry. And the, uh, the other side was saying, no, that's not true. Yeah. What we were saying, we didn't really address everything. And um, the irony is, as soon as the election ended, now the other side is saying, we have to build more power plants. Is what The people who were telling you the grid was resolved are saying, now we have to build more power plants. So this is what people need to know. Any expense, whether the power plant's built by CPS or an investor-owned utility in Houston or Dallas, there are expenses that get divided amongst all ratepayers through ERCOT. If it's an expense like the transmission wires that come out of West Texas for solar and wind, those transmission expense lines, those get um, divided amongst every ratepayer in Texas. Everybody gets a surcharge. There's a surcharge on your on your bill. So if the state, if, if state lawmakers are saying, you know, you know, all we got to do is build some more natural gas plants and this, that, and these are billion dollar propositions, our ratepayers are going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. So my say is time out, time out, time out. We've got about $2 billion worth of transmission congestion that we have not addressed on power that gets wasted, that's trying to get here from West Texas mm -hmm. that isn't used appropriately. Two, where are we on batteries so that the power that's generated during the day when the sunlight's going so we can store it or when the wind is blowing? Two. Three, we've got, we're losing as a, as a nation, we lose about 40% of the power that's generated is lost. It's, it's just not used. It's, it's, it's wasted. This state, one of the biggest problems why Winter Storm Uri occurred, most of our homes are heated the most inefficient way possible. Mm -hmm. Electric heating is the most inefficient, number one. Number two, they're not uh, weatherized appropriately. They're not insulated appropriately. They're not sealed appropriately. Mm -hmm. So people, it's much harder to retain the heat. So then there's things called demand response, where we as a power plant can say to, to, to people, whether they be buildings, uh, commercial buildings, or any institute, anywhere that's got a thermostat, we need X amount. We need you to reduce your use by X percentage. If you did that, that's instant power that is the most cheapest power you could have. It's the power you're not using. So I look at the example that we've done with saws. We use almost per capita, almost the same amount of water today that we used back in the 80s and 90s because there was a concerted effort to change uh, toilets, to change faucets, to change the shower heads, mm -hmm. to do all these things, to use less water. And that's relieved a lot of the pressure. If we could take the same approach to power if we could figure out ways to help more people weatherize, it would be the least expensive way to save more energy. And the energy you save is the one you don't need to build. The worst thing we could do is go build the damn power plant that we don't need in two or three years. That is a complete and total waste of taxpayer dollars. I, I, I mean, I don't understand how my conservative friends aren't the ones saying, mm -hmm. and, if, and it's, it's the opposite. They're the ones saying, we need more thermal energy. We need more flip a switch and get it. I'm like, wait a minute. Taxpayers are paying for that. Mm -hmm. hmm. Is it because they're afraid of another freeze? I mean, I'm, I, I hate I to even say I think it's a combination. I memories. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, of course. I yeah. mean, I wear a beard today because of winter storm. Camping yeah, out yeah, in yeah. our house. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we had a nine-month-old child in the house. I had to tell my wife, I go, we cannot stay in this house without mm -hmm. power. It's mm -hmm. rough. I, yeah. I found a hotel room downtown. I said, we got to go. And and uh, no, I mean, there was no way we were going to do this. And uh, no, no, I got emails from from young parents about the fear of either they were going to suffocate their kid or it was going to freeze under all these blankets that they had. 
No, no, it, we, do, we don't want, yes, there's a part of us who definitely never want to see another winter storm, Yuri. But then there's a part I think sometimes that you want to do the most easy political response. And the easy political response has always been throw money at it. Subsidize, I mean, Berkshire Hathaway at the end of the last session came into town and said, we'll fix your problem. Just give us $9 billion. We're going to build a bunch of little gas plants all over the state. And whenever there's an issue, we'll turn them on. Well, if we're going to subsidize you, why wouldn't we subsidize the existing people that are in here? You know, and, and is that the best answer to be subsidizing? I thought my Republican friends were against corporate subsidies and corporate welfare. They've been saying that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand which is which sides yeah. up, you know? So at the end of the day, my big fear and concern, anything we do, there are a lot of senior citizens in this town and around the state that keep their thermostats painfully high in the summer mm -hmm. and too cold in the winter mm -hmm. because they're afraid of paying more. Mm -hmm. And it's those folks who, who I f worry about. It's mm -hmm. those senior citizens. And, and I've got an 87 year old mom who I walk into her house in the summer. I go, why does it feel like a sauna in here? Mm -hmm. My mom too. Yeah. Yep. And so it's those folks who can't afford the extra five, 10 bucks. And that's why I tell Rudy Garza at CPS, dude, before you do anything, I want you to put it through a, a how does this impact the people who can least afford to pay? Because mm -hmm. it's easy to make decisions to say, yeah, it's only five or 10 bucks more a month or 20 bucks more. Well, yeah, maybe if you're getting paid what some of people get paid, but these people, want to, oh, they're on a fixed income. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we got to be thoughtful and smart and long have a long-term vision about what we do. So I've asked the PUC and I've asked CPS Energy to give me some short-term, some mid-term and long-term solutions and put them through a return on investment equation. So if we put this much money into it, what would it, what would it look like? And the reason why I think people don't talk enough about weatherization and stuff because they figure, they can't figure out how much money or how much it would save in actual dollars, you know, per home. Mm -hmm. and, and they think it may take too long to do. But, it, but it's the safest, it's the best way, and it's the most effective way. If you lower people's utility bills, you're helping that person out the most, mm -hmm. and you're reducing the, the need on, on the grid. Mm -hmm. Assuming all or most of the things that you're advocating for this morning don't come to pass. Thanks. In, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just I'm just kidding if you're yeah, yeah, putting, yeah, some yeah, yeah. putting some coal in your yeah, stocking. Yeah, yeah. 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 What would be considered a, I don't know, a, a decent session? Uh, I never, I, I, that's the other thing that happens after you've been there this long. You never try to uh, have expectations because sometimes you think it, everything's lining up to be a great session and weird stuff happens. And sometimes you prepare and you're like, oh my God, it's going to be the worst session ever. And it actually ends up okay. Never look, I, you know, it's funny. I think it's because I was so young that when I first started knocking on doors, I'd, and people would look at me kind of like, what the hell do you even know? And why should I vote for you? I go, look, I can only promise you two things. I'm going to tell you the truth and I'm going to work hard. And that's all I can control. And so I'll work as hard as I can to, to try to make my case to folks and to explain why I feel this way. This isn't about me running a, a poll and telling me it's going to move my voters one way or another. I, I don't run polls. Uh, unless I'm in a campaign, getting ready to start a campaign, want to know what people are thinking about. Um, I've done that, but I don't do it while I'm 
you know, trying to be a policymaker. Mm-hmm. I think I would hope that after I've mailed all my, my voters and I've ret- had their returns come back on their newsletters and they've said, these are the things that are hurting me that are, I'm worried about, that I can take that. And, and I have had quite a few people that are upset about their property taxes. And so I do know that, that everyday voters are concerned and we do need to address that issue. And, and I also think it's bad for Democrats uh, to allow other people to say Democrats don't care about your taxes. They don't care about what you have to pay. They're, they're just, you know, what do they call it? Tax spend? and spend. Tax and spend. Yeah. They're just tax and spend liberals. Yeah. You know what? At the end of the day, what I loved about City Hall is that we didn't have these these labels that hurt, uh, that, that impacted who was the policy, putting the person, the policy forward. At City Hall, we 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 kind of had an idea of where you what your inclinations were, but at the end of the day, it was a good idea, bad idea. Mm-hmm. How much does it cost? Who's going to pay for it? And if this good idea is we can afford it and it helps a lot of people, then let's do it. I don't care where it came from. I still try to take that approach to to Austin, and that's helped me a lot. It's helped me pass bills with people that I I'm sometimes fighting them tooth and nail on mm-hmm. on other issues, but you can't get, let it get personal. Cops Metro has a great saying that I've always kept in the back of my mind when I first heard it. It said, no permanent friends, no permanent enemies, Hmm. just issues. And politically, you have to live by that if you want to just get stuff done. Mm -hmm. Because your friends are in your house. They're they're in your neighborhood. Your friends are the people who you've always been your friends. Um, and, and, And you never, another one that I enjoy is don't trade in new friends for old friends because neither will trust you. (laughs) <laughs> there you go great advice yeah. um, after the uh, the Uvalde school shooting uh, Rob Elementary um, there were people uh, particularly in your party calling for a special session and Governor Abbott uh, refused to do that is there do you think that there's any possibility of, of, of any movement on, on gun issues whether it's you know just raising the minimum age for gun purchases or, or, or anything else yeah um, many of us reached out to um, to Roland Senator Gutierrez and to uh, others out in Uvalde and the response of people from San Antonio whether it be school districts, whether it be university hospital, whether it be first responders to help support the people involved, it was great. But um, yeah, the Democratic Caucus, we wrote a letter to the governor asking for a special session. And we had a few things, just a few basic things we wanted to see, raising the the age. We wanted some common sense gun legislation. We've, uh, many of us have felt that um, it would be appropriate uh, for us to follow and support Senator Gutierrez on on the bills that he's filed. Um, and so I'm looking forward to doing that. I think the only one that, unfortunately, even though there are at least two or three or four that have a lot of merit, um, the only one that I think might uh, get some traction would be raising the age from 18 to 21. I think that has support amongst uh, many. And uh, I'd like to see somewhat of a licensure, a training type of thing for those types of weapons, for assault style weapons, Mm -hmm. um, because I think it's a different type of weapon and it's one that that needs to have some training on. Um, And I think it'd be important. I think I think that would make a difference. Um, I think it'd be great if we could have red flag laws. Uh, I think red flag laws would save lives um, because there are a lot of people who at some point in their life 
have had so many things going wrong that they may be a danger to themselves or others. I, I seem to remember uh, in 2019 when the uh, the El Paso shooting yeah. happened. Right. Wasn't uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Pat? Wasn't wasn't he showing some uh, inclination yeah. to to go along with the red flag? He, he was arrest? initially. He was. Yeah. No, he was initially. Yeah. I. You know. Look. Austin is a place where a lot of people have um, have the ability to be, you know, visited by a lot of people. And mm -hmm. there's times, unfortunately, uh, things change. And I, and, and I guess it's the reason why you have to try to keep an open mind, even though um, there you can have someone who's had a, a long history of being opposed to something. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's like the day that I walked in and, and I was asking um, a colleague of mine about medical cannabis. And she said, I need to see a medical proof that it works. If not, I'm still going to be opposed. Someone on the other side of the aisle, and I, I was able to get a doctor, and they sat down, and she said, yeah, it makes sense. And so we were able to expand the use. We don't have a full medical cannabis uh, bill in Texas. We have a very limited, restricted, mm -hmm. it's not real in the sense uh, we need to have uh, just doctors who have an MD be able to ward their patient, prescribe whatever cannabinoid th therapies that they may need. But the point is this, that if we got to keep talking, mm -hmm. we cannot, we, we can't give in to the people. We have people who are hyperactive in our primaries and our parties who want us to stop talking to each other. Mm -hmm. We can't do that. The moment we do that, we'll have no progress. Uh, before we wrap things up, I want to talk about uh, voting and elections mm -hmm. um, coming out of the 2020 election and Donald Trump's um, big lie about the election being stolen from mm -hmm. him. We saw Texas and other states impose restrictive election laws. Um, and so I'm curious to get your, your take on whether you think we're going to see further action on that issue. And also I get a chance to, uh, to talk with you a little bit about a bill that you filed uh, calling for counties to... Uh, provide polling sites at colleges that have mm -hmm. 5,000 or more right. uh, students. And I think this is something that you've, th th this is not a new issue for you. Correct. This is something you've been talking about. Yeah. So I think the first part of your question is, do we think they're going to come back with more restrictive stuff? Absolutely. Look, the, the game plan nationally for, for Republicans is that they have to shave every percentage point, every place they can. They have to make every effort to where it reduces the the outcome, the possibility for them to lose close elections. That's the way you stay in power. Um, which is why when I when they did the last one, the one where there was the big walkout and we finally had the debate on on the voter suppression bill. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I I had an amendment that got adopted, and that amendment was one that that I think he finally looked at it and said, "Oh my God, yeah, you're right." I, it was like if I said so. My constituents who worked 5.30, 6 o'clock, 6.30, get in line by 6.45, you're going to tell them that at 7, that voting's ended, but because there's 100 people online, they can't vote? He's like, oh, uh, no, I guess you're right. If hmm. they're in line by 7, they should. I said, yeah, I mean, I, I, that, yeah, but that's what they had. If you hadn't voted by 7, it was over <laughs> wow. initially in the bill. So uh, do I expect more stuff? Sure, I expect more stuff. Now- one of the amendments I was trying to make on that bill is that college campuses must have voting sites. And it, what I wanted to do it was well, in terms of population, like a, a voting, you know, machines or polling site by ter terms of ten, how many thousands of students do you have? And of course, they, they said no, um, because I think they are afraid of younger people voting. 
is is Greg Abbott the same man slash politician now that he was before 2016, before the advent of Trump? You, um, you look. I don't speak to the governor that often, so I'm not going to tell you that my personal impression. All I will tell you is based on everything anybody could do, and that's based on what we read in the paper, we read in his possession papers, his his activities. It seems to me that not only has Donald Trump affected where Governor Abbott feels he needs to be politically, but it, but also more more recently, it seems that Ron DeSantis mm. has impacted where he feels he needs to be. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and I'm not sure if it's because like many of the rumors are that he's running for president. Maybe. I don't know. But I mean, why do you need a hundred million dollars? Because obviously he didn't need him to run for governor in Texas, but, but he's got, you know, he's raised over a hundred million dollars and he's got a high profile. So, and he comes from a big state, so it would make sense if he chose to throw his hat in the ring for the Republican Party. Now, if that's the case, and you think you got to make it through the primary, well, maybe you get up every day and think, I need to be more more right-wing and more partisan than my opponents. Senator Menezes, thank you so much for being with us. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And for everyone listening, um, We hope the holidays are great for you and you have a happy new year and we will be back with you early in 2023. Take care.